Find Hebrews chapter 13. Money matters. Money matters. Chapter 13. And as you're finding your place in your copy of God's Word, uh, I want to ask you just to focus a moment on the insert in your bulletin. Uh, You will see the new Sunday school schedule. Now, I've got a question for you. Uh, David Smith... Did you come this morning to church in your motor coach? In your motor coach? In Karen's motor coach. Okay. Okay. Uh, We're being told anyway that uh, Sunday school, the name Sunday school now is kind of like saying motor coach. Dated. Uh, Community groups, you'll notice, is what they're being called now. And so we are trying to be a little more up to date with some of our lingo. So community groups, you'll notice your community groups. Uh, So please make note of that. And we thank those who have agreed uh, to teach. Now, I want to say something else to you this morning before I get started. Uh, I want to let you know that we have heard you. Some of you have been asking why uh, over the summer or fall this year that we were not doing like we've been doing the past couple of years and enjoying one service together. The church has enjoyed that the past couple of years. Uh, Some deacons have asked about it as well. Uh, At the quarterly business conference, you asked that the staff would be praying about ministries of the church and uh, that we would be considering everything in prayer before we make drastic changes. The staff has been unanimous the last several times we've spoken about this that we need to be in one service right now for the fall. Uh, Again, as some of you have been asking Uh, If anything, I've been a holdout on that because we've been saying just the opposite lately, Uh, doing different styles of services. But we believe the greatest need that we have right now uh, is being together, one church, a unified body, and building on that unity As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, there's one body. You know, the world is so divided right now, so divided. And if anything, we need to be an example for the world. Uh, People have commented to us the past 20 years that the strength of pits was grandparents, grandchildren, in the same church, uh, worshiping together. And so few have that today. Yesterday was a prime example. We had a hundred and forty of our people here serving the community. A hundred and forty. And we had people of all ages. We had children who were doing things to minister to children. We had youth. We had young adults. We had median adults. We had senior adults. Uh, It was absolutely awesome to see. In fact, one of the Rocky River volunteers said, you know what? We've helped pits with this, but 
I need to go back to my church now and say, we need to step it up a notch and do like Pitts did. And we need to get all of our generations uh, involved. Uh, it was pretty tremendous to see that yesterday. By the way, we served about 85 or 90 meals in-house. There were 225 to-go meals served. There were 21 haircuts given. There was all kinds of children's crafts and activity and prayer going on. Uh, I mean, it was, it was truly phenomenal to see. And uh, again, just... Everybody working together. So togetherness has been our strength. And we want to build on that again. And Kevin Seeger made a great suggestion. He said, you know, in May of 2000, when we went into this building, uh, this was our schedule. Uh, The schedule that you see posted in your bulletin this morning. And so that's what we want to try this September. Give it a try and we'll listen. We'll get feedback And if we need to change again, we'll change again, okay? But uh, together, worshiping together for the fall. And to kick off our worship together, I am not going to do a book study. I'm going to do a topical study on the Bible speaks to the issue of evil and suffering. The Bible speaks to the issue of evil and suffering. Uh, We are told that probably the number one question people outside of the church are asking is, what do Christians do with the problem of evil and suffering? And philosophers dating back to ancient times have been using the triangle that God is all-loving and God is all-powerful. Evil exists. And they'll say any two points of that triangle seem to us to be able to coexist at one time, but how do all three coexist? Well, Christians believe the Bible gives answers on that. And so we're going to talk about some of those biblical answers together. Uh, Beginning mid-September, right after our Mission Sunday. So invite somebody, invite an unbeliever. That might be the question that they've been asking you about. Invite an unbeliever. Uh, to come for this topical series. I think it might help them uh, in a tremendous way. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained uh, angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in, in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And those are the two verses we'll concentrate on this morning. Father, I do pray that you would open our hearts and our understanding to your word. These very practical verses about something that we all have to deal with in our lives. And 
And that's our money, our possessions. Lord, I pray that it would be said of us that we do indeed seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Where change is needed, we pray that you would bring that. Where encouragement is needed, bring that through the preaching of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, folks, once again, I want to remind you today of what I have been reminding you of just about every message in the book of Hebrews, and that is the context of the book, that these were Christians who had just come out of Judaism for the most part. They've come out of Judaism, and uh, because they've come to Christ, they are suffering for their Christian faith. Some of them have lost family members. Their family members won't have anything to do with them anymore because they've turned to Christ. Uh, Also, some of them have lost standing in the business community. Some of them, uh, others aren't trading with them anymore. They're not sharing their wealth with them anymore. So they've lost their businesses. These are people who have genuinely suffered for the name of Christ. And some of them, because of that, they're longing to go back to the temple again because they're saying, you know, it was simple back then. We weren't being opposed this way. But now the the Jews are opposing us. Even the Romans now are beginning to oppose the Christians. Nero, in all probability, it was Nero who set Rome on fire. He needed a scapegoat. He, He blamed Christians. And so the Romans are beginning to turn against Christians. And then it won't be too many years from the time of the book of Hebrew that Christians are being asked to go into the pagan temples and the civic centers and burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if they won't do that, then they are going to be persecuted, thrown in prison or fed to the wild beast or whatever. And so these are people suffering. Now, I think we can safely say that the book of Hebrews was indeed written before 70 A.D. because in 70 A.D. we know that the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. There wasn't a temple to go back to after 70. They're still wanting to go back to the temple. And the writer is saying, you can't go back. You've got to persevere in your faith. Not only must you persevere, but you need to grow. You need to grow to the point that that you become teachers yourselves of the faith. Look back with me at the end of chapter 10, what he says there. The end of chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, he says... For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see what he's saying there? They've lost everything. The plundering of their property. 
Now, folks, it's in that context that I want to return to what he's saying here in chapter 13. What he's saying to them is you need to be content. Yes, you've lost worldly wealth, but be content because you have a wealth that is greater than anything that this world can offer. What we see here is that that we need to, we are to have a love for the Lord and the things of the Lord that is greater than anything that we possess in this world. Now, I hope you'll take notes this morning, and I'm going to work to death the guys up with the slides because I've got a bunch of them. Uh, I hope they'll keep up. But anyway, uh, guard your heart when it comes to possessions. Guard your heart when it comes to possessions. Look again at verse 5 of chapter 13. Look at verse 5 again with me. What he says here, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You see, this is a mindset they've always got to work on continually. They need to keep their lives free from the love of money. We need to guard our hearts. As I said last week, we have to have money because we've got to support our families in this world. But this world is not to cloud our judgment. And folks, I also want to point out there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. I'm so sick and tired of hearing some of these politicians today talking like it is a wretched thing if you own anything or have money. It'd be bad if you got it dishonestly, and it would be wrong to love money. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. We need to remember some of the godliest people in the Bible were wealthy. People like Job and people like Abraham. And Jesus was very close to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it's generally believed that this was a wealthy family who supported Jesus and his disciples. And yes, money poses a danger. That's true. And that's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so oftentimes, yes indeed, wealth can blind us to God. And that's why the Bible gives so many warnings when it comes to wealth. Read with me on the screen what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. He goes on in that chapter to say, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. But again, money is amoral. It's neither moral nor immoral. It's amoral. 
It's what we do with it that matters. It's our attitude towards it. John says in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, nor the things of the world. If you love the world and the things of the world, he says the love of the Father is not in you. And then he goes on to point out all that's in the world is going to pass away one day. It's going to be gone. I want to ask you this morning, does Jesus mean more to you than everything that you own? Does Jesus mean more to you than everything that you own? What if you were in danger of losing everything simply because you're a Christian? Would you still follow Christ? What's your attitude to money and possessions? You say, Scott, of course I love Jesus more. Well, I want us to think honestly about that this morning. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you might think, you know, the church is always talking about money. The finance committee has told me, Pastor Scott, you never preach on money. You need to preach on money some, Pastor. In 22 years of ministry, if my records are accurate, I think in 22 years I have preached on money two times. So anyway, I say that to point out it's something we almost never discuss here. So don't shut down on me this morning, okay? And don't leave saying the church always talks about giving. You know, Jesus, there's two topics Jesus spoke on more than anything else. And the world is always saying, why can't the church today be more like Jesus? Well, I want to tell you something. In his teaching, the two topics Jesus spoke on the most were money and hell. Money and hell. So if we were going to be more like Jesus in our teaching, we'd need to talk more about money and hell. What do you think the world would say about that? <laughs> but honestly, is your life free of the love of money? We're told now that Bible-believing evangelicals on average... From those who do these studies, if we can believe everything they report, there's been some good studies. They give, on average, 2.3%. That's in Bible-believing conservative churches, 2.3%. You know, we talk about the tithe, 10%. Through the decades, it's gradually started coming down, 9, 6, 4 Three. Now we're told it's 2.3%. And we're also told that Christians during the years of the Great Depression gave more than Christians today are giving. Christians out of their poverty during the Great uh, Depression gave more than Christians today in the West are giving out of their abundance. That's something to think about, isn't it? 
This past week, my small group met on Thursday night. The men of the church are going through a book by Dr. Kent Hughes, a very respected scholar. He's a retired pastor, pastor at a college church in the Wheaton College community, very respected pastor, very respected scholar. And the book that we're studying by him this week, we looked at the, at the chapter that he spoke of on giving. And he said, you know, we think in the Old Testament about giving being 10%. He said, actually, the mandatory giving in Israel was not 10%. It was 25%. There was the tithe, the Lord's tithe, then the festival tithe, and then the poor tithe. He said, you add it all together, it's 25% and their free will giving, their free will offerings did not kick in until they had given, first of all, 25%. He points out in the New Covenant, even though things are not broken down like in the Old Testament, we ought to be thinking about grace giving. If the New Covenant is greater than the Old Covenant then why in the world, he's saying, is our giving what it is today in the church? Why is it only 2.3%? I want to give you an application point. Make sure your giving to the Lord's work reflects that you put Christ first. I want to ask you a question. What story would your bank accounts tell? What story would your bank accounts tell? Some years ago, the Charlotte Observer carried an article, Richer But Not Happier. The article spoke about rising affluence in America. And one part of the article said, The average size of a new home has expanded from 1,500 square feet to now 2,200 square feet. The average number of, at the same time that families have shrunk in size. The average number of cars has gone from one car for every adult driver over 16 to now, I mean, one car for every two to now one car for every single person, 16 and older. The number of Americans taking cruises has risen from a half a million to seven million. Over 12 million when you look at all of North America. Recreation vehicles have risen from 30,000 to almost 250,000. We are now attending more symphonies, plays, concerts, and sporting events than ever and buying more boats and electronics and various gadgetry. But the article went on to say, but are we happier as a society? Robert Lane, a professor at Yale, points to a rising tide of clinical depression increasing distrust of other people and institutions and erosion of family ties and friendships. Uh, Conservative analyst William Bennett said, the nation we live in today is more violent and vulgar, rude and remorseless, deviant and depressed than the one that we once inhabited. Stress tends to increase with income levels. I found this interesting in the article. An investment strategist for Payne Weber said, more money means more consumption and more consumption means more stress about purchasing, transporting, insuring, using, Using, storing, cleaning, repairing, and discarding goods. The article reported how some Americans are now purposely trying 
to simplify their lives and go smaller. Now, folks, don't get the idea that affluence is only a problem in the West. Ron Blue, who uh, Larry Burkett, before Larry Burkett died, Ron Blue used to appear with him a lot. Ron Blue tells the story of visiting a small rural uh, village in Africa. He asked a native there what was the biggest problem facing his village. And to his shock, the man said, materialism. Ron said he was stunned. He thought it'd be a lack of food, lack of drinking water, need for doctors and medicines. How could it be materialism? These villagers don't have cars. They don't have televisions. They don't have satellite dishes. Some of them don't even have homes. But the villager said to Ron, and I quote here, if a man has a mud hut, he wants one made out of cow manure. If he has a cow manure hut, he wants one made out of stone. If he has a thatch roof, he wants a tin roof. If he has one acre, he wants two. Then he said materialism is a disease of the heart. It has nothing to do with where you live. Look again at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Guard your heart. It's something you've got to continually work at. Now, secondly, he points out here that we need to change our focus. Look at what he says. He says, and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Most of you have heard the name Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to Ecuador who gave his life for the sake of preaching the gospel. And he was speared to death by the very people that he went to to teach the gospel to. But you may not have heard a lot about Jim Elliott as a young man. And I want to share some, some thoughts from him, from his writings that his wife Elizabeth Elliott has published. She says, as he left on board a ship bound for mission work in Ecuador, he wrote, We left our moorings at the Outer Harbor Dock, San Pedro, California at 2.06 today. Mom and Dad stood together watching at the pier side. As we slipped away, Psalm 60.12 came to my mind and I called back, Through our God we will do valiantly. They all wept. I do not understand, he says, how God has made me. Joy, sheer joy and thanksgiving fill and encompass me. God has done and is doing all I ever desired, much more than I ever asked. Praise, praise to the God of heaven and to his son, Jesus. Because he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I may boldly say because of that, I will not fear. While a student at Wheaton College... Jim limited his extracurricular activities, fearing that he might become occupied in non-essentials and miss the essentials of life. In November 1947, he wrote a letter to his parents which showed where his ambitions were. He said, and I quote, The Lord has given me a hunger for righteousness and piety that can alone 
only be of himself. Such hungering he alone can satisfy. Yet Satan would delude and cast up all sorts of other baubles, social life, a name renowned, a position of importance, scholastic attainment. What are these but the objects of the desires of the Gentiles whose cravings are warped and perverted? No doubt you will hear of my receiving preliminary honors at school. They carry the same brand and will lie not long hence in the basement in a battered trunk beside the special gold B pen with the ruby in it for which I studied four years at Benson. All is vanity below the sun and a striving after wind. Life is not here but hid above with Christ in God and therein I rejoice and sing as I think about such excellence. Now, folks, why do I share that with you? Here was a kingdom-focused man. Kingdom-focused. He wasn't looking for what this world could give him. In the Westminster Shore Catechism, the question is asked, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's how Jim Elliot lived his life. The writer of Hebrews in these verses is inviting each one of those in his congregation to live the very same way. Live a kingdom-focused life. Guard your heart. Be content. And look at another principle here. Learn to be content with what God has allowed you to have. Now folks, that principle doesn't mean that you and I can't ever do anything to better our lives. It's just simply saying not get on the treadmill of thinking that what you possess is going to make you happy. Too many people are on that treadmill of accumulating things and they get to the end of their lives and their lives haven't meant anything for the kingdom of God. We need to learn contentment. Several years ago, there was an article appeared on the front page of both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Two economists who were husband and wife took part in the study. And then there was also a sociologist. They all three said they were stunned by what they found. One of the economists was Angus Deaton, a Nobel uh, Prize recipient in economics. The article says volumes about the emptiness of life. Anyway, according to the article in question, for the first time in recent history, the death rate among the middle class in America is rising and life expectancy is falling. And that's happening in the middle class and in particular the middle class ages 45 to 54. Is it because of diseases? No. They found we're making remarkable strides in those areas. It is because of behavior. Death rates are increasing and life expectancy is going down because of alcohol abuse, heroin use and overdose, prescription pill increases, especially related to painkillers, and suicide. 90% of all new heroin users are middle class Americans. 
Now, mind you, this is not happening in any other advanced country that they looked at, but it's happening right here on American soil. It was stunning to see the chart, the graph, lifespans in other advanced countries going up while lifespans in America were falling. People are destroying their lives. And these economists and this sociologist talked about what all it communicates. And one thing it communicates is we are entertaining ourselves to death and it's not working. We're getting more and more and we're doing more and more and it's not working. Sad. Too many people have bought into Satan's lie of living for this world and the things of this world and all that it has to offer and they're ending up completely bankrupt, spiritually speaking. This morning, are you content? Are you thinking, if I only get a better job, better position, new house, Another vacation, another car, season tickets to the Panthers. If I get some of these things, is it going to enrich my life? Well, remember the lie Satan told to Eve in the garden? If you take this and eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. She brought, bought into the temptation, she took and ate. And her eyes were open. But guess what? It wasn't like she thought it was going to be. Satan's a liar. The writer of Hebrews wants his audience to know, yes, you may have lost things, but it's only things that you've lost. And those are things that could have never satisfied you to begin with. The real secret of contentment is Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough? Hasn't happened much. A couple of times I can distinctly remember talking to folks Different churches I've pastored, including this one, in the past, as I say, hasn't happened much. But a man would tell me, Pastor, I know God's calling me and my family to the mission field, or I know God is calling us to ministry. But we're not going to do it. We have too many things and too much stuff, and I don't see how we can make the adjustment. I can think distinctly of a couple of different men who said something like that. I know God's calling me to such and such, but I can't do it. And I won't do it. Because all the stuff we have. Verse 5, he reminds them of what God says. I will never leave you or forsake you. He's promising to be with you and to provide for you anything that you need. 
where he says, I will not forsake you. What's he saying? He's saying, I will take care of you. Anything I lead you to do, whatever I lead you to do, wherever I lead you, I am going to take care of you. Because of that, you can be content in Jesus. Thirdly, Know where your true security is. Look at verse 6. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, what's the initial response to that? What can man do to me? What's the initial response to that? Man can do a lot to me. Man can do a lot. Man can really hurt you. Man can rob you of everything you have. Man can even take your life. Man can put you in prison. He's not trying to brush any of that aside. But remember what Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can only take what you have or take your life. Instead, fear the one who can both take your life and cast your soul into hell. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to see is that if Christ is really their confidence and their life, then men cannot cause them ultimate harm. If this world and the things of this world is all that you have, if these are the things that are your priority and focus, and somebody takes them, then you've lost everything. But if Jesus is your focus and man takes everything, then we can know that Jesus will be our helper and he will provide whatever we need. He's trying to show that the Christian cannot be defeated by this world. The Christian is not to be defined by the things of this world and the Christian cannot be defeated by this world. We have confidence. We have security. We have a security in a sovereign God who's greater than this world and nothing, nothing can diminish His power or His watch care over your life. Another principle, if your confidence is in Christ, you have a confidence the world cannot take away regardless of what happens. If your confidence, on the other hand, is the world or the things of the world, anything can happen to cut your feet out from under you. A stock market crash, a job loss. A bad doctor's report. A divorce. But if Christ is your confidence, He is eternal. Nothing can diminish or change that. So real quick, what's some lessons we can end with? What's what's some of the rest of the New Testament have to say about this? Lesson number one. Treasure the right treasure. Treasure the right treasure. What would that be? Treasure the eternal and not the temporal. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? 
Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where there neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasure the right treasure. Earthly treasures can evaporate in an instant. Moth and rust, that would be the forces of nature that can erode what you have. Thieves, that would be people stealing what you have. Earthly forces can diminish everything you have. And so what's the lesson? Be rich toward God. Second lesson, temper human anxiety over things. Jesus went on to say, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Trust God to take care of you. A number of years ago I read about the ancient, uh, there was an ancient tribe of Guatemalan Indians and they were allowed to have little anxiety dolls, worry dolls, brightly covered little dolls that they would put in a box. And they believed, they had a superstition to believe at night you could tell all of your troubles and anxieties and worries to one of these dolls, each doll, one of them, so you were allowed five worries a day. You could tell this doll this, put it in the box, close the box, and overnight the, the little Indian doll would work on your anxiety. Well, the Bible's saying we've got something better. We've got God. We don't have some superstition. We have the sovereign God of the universe, the one who is our refuge and our strength, a present help in time of trouble. Lastly, tend to God's business. Matthew six thirty three. What should Jesus say there? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's like God is saying... You tend to my business and then I'll tend to your business. You put me first and I'll make sure you have everything you need. C.S. Lewis says, and I close with this, If our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, We probably give away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do but cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Be rich towards God. Be rich towards God. And trust Him. And I love what Paul said of the Macedonian Christians, the true secret in all of this. Writing to the Corinthians about them, he said, They gave first of all of themselves to the Lord, and then they gave out of their resources. That's the key, isn't it? Give first of yourself, and then it's natural from there. To give to God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, help us to evaluate our attitude concerning money.
Lord, convict us if there's any possession that we have that we would not give up. Lord, help us to ask ourselves what our bank account says about us. Are we content in you? Lord, you know where your people need to change. And I pray that through the power of your spirit, you would bring about that change. Lord, we know this is a heart issue. And so we pray that you would speak to our hearts. And if there's anybody here who needs to, first of all, give of themselves to you by coming to Christ, that they would come boldly this morning confessing Christ, in whose name we pray.